Martin Chuzzlewit, Chapter Twenty Five. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens, Chapter Twenty Five, is in part professional and furnishes the reader with some valuable hints in relation to the management of a sick chamber. Mr. Mould was surrounded by his household gods. He was enjoying the sweets of domestic repose, and gazing on them with a calm delight. The day being sultry and the window open, the legs of Mr. Mould were on the window-seat, and his back reclined against the shutter. Over his shining head a handkerchief was drawn to guard his baldness from the flies. The room was fragrant with the smell of punch a tumbler of which grateful compound stood upon a small round table, convenient to the hand of Mr. Mould, so deftly mixed that as his eye looked down into the cool transparent drink, another eye, peering brightly from behind the crisp lemon-peel, looked up at him and twinkled like a star. Deep in the city, and within the ward of Cheap, stood Mr. Mould's establishment. His harem, or in other words the common sitting-room of Mrs. Mould and family, was at the back, over the little counting-house behind the shop, abutting on a churchyard, small and shady. In this domestic chamber Mr. Mould now sat, gazing, a placid man, upon his punch and home. If for a moment at a time he sought a wider prospect, whence he might return with fashioned zest to these enjoyments, his moist glance wandered like a sunbeam through a rural screen of scarlet runners, trained on strings before the window, and he looked down with an artist's eye upon the graves. The partners of his life and daughter's twain were Mr. Mould's companions. Plump as any partridge was each Miss Mould, and Mrs. M. was plumper than the two together. So round and chubby were their fair proportions, that they might have been the bodies once belonging to the angels' faces in the shop below, grown up with other heads attached to make them mortal. Even their peachy cheeks were puffed out and distended, as though they ought by right to be performing on celestial trumpets. The bodiless cherubs in the shop, who were depicted as constantly blowing those instruments for ever and ever, without any lungs, played, it is to be presumed, entirely by ear. Mr. Mould looked lovingly at Mrs. Mould, who sat hard by, and was a helpmate to him in his punch as in all other things. Each seraph daughter, too, enjoyed her share of his regards and smiled upon him in return. So bountiful were Mr. Mould's possessions, and so large his stock in trade, that even there, within his household sanctuary, stood a cumbrous press, whose mahogany maw was filled with shrouds and winding-sheets and other furniture of funerals. But though the Mrs. Mould had been brought up, as one might say, beneath his eye, it had cast no shadow on their timid infancy or blooming youth. Sporting behind the scenes of death and burial from cradlehood, the Mrs. Mould knew no better. Hat-bands to them were but so many yards of silk or crepe, the final robe but such a quantity of linen. The Mrs. Mould could idealize a player's habit, or a court lady's petticoat, or even an act of Parliament, but they were not to be taken in by Paul's. They made them sometimes. 
The premises of Mr. Mould were hard of hearing to the boisterous noses in the great main streets, and nestled in a quiet corner where the city strife became a drowsy hum that sometimes rose and sometimes fell and sometimes altogether ceased, suggesting to a thoughtful mind a stoppage in Cheapside. The light came sparkling in among the scarlet runners, as if the churchyard winked at Mr. Mould and said, We understand each other and from the distant shop a pleasant sound arose of coffin-making with a low melodious hammer rat-tat-tat-tat alike promoting slumber and digestion quite the buzz of insects said mr mould closing his eyes in perfect luxury it puts one in mind of the sound of animated nature in the agricultural districts it's exactly like the woodpecker tapping the woodpecker tapping the hollow elm-tree, observed Mrs. Mould, adapting the words of the popular melody to the description of wood commonly used in the trade. Ha, <laughs> ha, laughed Mr. Mould. Not at all bad, my dear. We shall be glad to hear from you again. Mrs. M. Hollow Elm-tree, eh? <laughs> Very good indeed. I've seen worse than that in the Sunday papers, my love. Mrs. Mould, thus encouraged, took a little more of the punch, and handed it to her daughters, who dutifully followed the example of their mother. "'Hollow elm-tree, eh?' said Mr. Mould, making a slight motion with his legs in his enjoyment of the joke. "'It's beech and the song. Elm, eh? Yes, to be sure. <laughs> Upon my soul, that's one of the best things I know.' He was so excessively tickled by the jest that he couldn't forget it, but repeated twenty times. Elm, eh? Yes, to be sure. Elm, of course. <laughs> Upon my life, you know that ought to be sent to somebody who could make use of it. It's one of the smartest things that ever was said. Hollow Elmry, eh? Of course. Very hollow. <laughs> Here a knock was heard at the room door. "'That's Tacker, I know,' said Mrs. Mould, "'by the wheezing he makes. "'Who that hears him now would suppose he'd ever had wind enough to carry the feathers on his head? "'Come in, Tacker.' "'Beg your pardon, ma'am,' said Tacker, looking in a little way. "'I thought our governor was here.' "'Well, so he is,' cried Mould. "'Oh, I didn't see you, I'm sure,' said Tacker, looking in a little farther. You wouldn't be inclined to take a walking one of two with the plain wood and a tin plate, I suppose. Certainly not, replied Mr. Mould. Much too common, nothing to say to it. I told him it was precious low, observed Mr. Tacker. Tell him to go somewhere else. We don't do that style of business here, said Mr. Mould. Like their impudence to propose it. Who is it? Why, returned Tacker, pausing, that's where it is, you see. It's the beadle's son-in-law. "'The beadle's son-in-law, eh?' said Mould. "'Well, I'll do it if the beadle follows in his cocked hat, not else. We carry it off that way by looking official, but it'll be low enough, then. His cocked hat, mind.' "'I'll take care, sir,' returned Tacker. "'Oh, Mrs. Gamp's below and wants to speak to you.' "'Tell Mrs. Gamp to come upstairs,' said Mould. "'Now, Mrs. Gamp, what's your news?' The lady in question was by this time in the doorway, curtsying to Mrs. Mould. 
at the same moment a peculiar fragrance was borne upon the breeze as if a passing fairy had hiccupped and had previously been to wine vaults mrs gamp made no response to mr mould but curtsied to mrs mould again and held up her hands and eyes as in a devout thanksgiving that she looked so well she was neatly but not so gaudily attired in the weeds she had worn when mr pecksniff had the pleasure of making her acquaintance and was perhaps the turning of a scale more snuffy there are some happy creatures mrs gamp observed as time runs backwards with and you are one mrs mould not that he need do nothing except use you in his most audacious way for years to come i'm sure for young you are and will be i says to mrs harris mrs gamp continued only t'other day the last monday evening fortnight as ever dawned upon this pilgrim's progress of a mortal whale i says to mrs harris when she says to me years and our trials mrs gamp sets marks upon us all say not the words mrs harris if you and me is to be continual friends for such is not the case mrs mould i says making so free i will confess as use the name she curtsied here is one of them that goes again the observation straight and never mrs harris whilst i've a drop of breath to draw will i sit by and not stand up don't think it i asked your pardon ma'am says mrs harris and i humbly grant your grace for if ever a woman lived as would see her fellow-creatures into fits to serve her friends well do i know that woman's name is sairy gamp at this point she was fain to stop for breath and advantage may be taken of the circumstance to state that a fearful mystery surrounding this lady of the name of harris whom no one in the circle of mrs gamp's acquaintance had ever seen neither did any human being know her place of residence though mrs gamp appeared on her own showing to be in constant communication with her there were conflicting rumours on the subject but the prevalent opinion was that she was a phantom of mrs gamp's brain as mrs doe and roe are fictions of the law created for the express purpose of holding visionary dialogues with her on all manner of subjects and invariably winding up with a compliment to the excellence of her nature and likewise what a pleasure said mrs gamp turning with a tearful smile towards the daughters to see them two young ladies as i'd known afore a tooth in their pretty heads was cut and have many a day seen ah the sweet creatures playin at berrians down in the shop and follerin the order-book to its long home in the iron safe but that's all past and over mr mould as she thus got in a carefully regulated routine to that gentleman she shook her head waggishly that's all past and over now sir ain't it changes mrs gamp changes returned the undertaker more changes too to come afore we're done with changes sir said mrs gamp nodding yet more waggishly than before young ladies with such faces thinks of something else besides berrians don't they sir 
"'I am sure I don't know, Mrs. Gamp,' said Mould, with a chuckle. "'Not bad in Mrs. Gamp, my dear.' "'Oh, yes, you do know, sir,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'And so does Mrs. Mould, your handsome partner, too, sir. "'And so do I, although the blessing of a daughter was denied me, "'which, if we had had one, Gamp would certainly have drunk its little shoes right off its feet, as with our precious boy he did, and afterwards send the child a errand to sell his wooden leg for any money it would fetch as matches in the rough, and bring it home in liquor, which was truly done beyond his years, for every individual penny that child lost at toss or bifurcated ones, and come home afterwards quite bold to break the news, and offering to drown himself if such would be a satisfaction to his parents. "'Oh, yes, you do know, sir,' said Mrs. Gamp, wiping her eye with her shawl and resuming the thread of her discourse. "'There's something besides births and burians in the newspapers, ain't there, Mr. Mould?' Mr. Mould winked at Mrs. Mould, whom he had by this time taken on his knee, and said, "'No doubt, a good deal more, Mrs. Gamp. Upon my life, Mrs. Gamp is very far from bad, my dear.' "'There's Marion's, ain't there, sir?' said Mrs. Gamp, while both the daughters blushed and tittered. "'Bless their precious hearts, and well they knows it. Well you knowed it, too, and well did Mrs. Mould when you was at their time of life. But my opinion is you're all of one age now, for as to you and Mrs. Mould, sir, ever having grandchildren—' "'Oh, fie, fie! Nonsense, Mrs. Gamp,' replied the undertaker. "'Devilish smart, though. Capital!' This was in a whisper. "'My dear,' aloud again, "'Mrs. Gamp can drink a glass of rum, I dare say. Sit down, Mrs. Gamp, sit down.' Mrs. Gamp took the chair that was nearest the door, and, casting up her eyes towards the ceiling, feigned to be wholly insensible to the fact of a glass of rum being in preparation until it was placed in her hand by one of the young ladies, when she exhibited the greatest surprise. "'A thing,' she said, "'as hardly ever, Mrs. Mould, occurs with me unless it is when I am indisposed, and find my half a pint of porter settling heavy on the chest. Mrs. Harris often and often says to me, "'Sary Gamp,' she says, "'you really do amaze me.' "'Mrs. Harris,' I says to her, "'why so? Give it a name, I beg.' "'Telling the truth, then, ma'am,' says Mrs. Harris, "'and shaming him as shall be nameless betwixt you and me, "'never did I think till I knowed you as any woman "'could sickness and monthly likewise on the little that you takes to drink. "'Mrs. Harris,' I says to her, "'none on us knows what we can do till we tries, "'and once, when me and Gamp kept house, I thought so too.' But now, I says, my half a pint of porter, fully satisfied, perwisin' Mrs. Harris, that it's brought regular and drawed mild. Whether I six or monthlies, ma'am, I hope I does my duty, but I am but a poor woman, and I earns my living hard. Therefore I 
do require it, which I makes confession to be brought regular and drawed mild. The precise connection between these observations and the glass of rum did not appear, for Mrs. Gamp, proposing as a toast, the best of lucks to all, took off the dram in quite a scientific manner, without any further remarks. "'And what's your news, Mrs. Gamp?' asked Mould again, as that lady wiped her lips upon her shawl and nibbled a quarter off a soft biscuit, which she appeared to carry in her pocket as a provision against contingent drams. "'How's Mr. Chuffey?' "'Mr. Chuffey, sir,' she replied, "'is just as usual. He ain't no better, and he ain't no worse.' I take it very kind in the gentleman to have wrote up to you and said, let Mrs. Gamp take care of him till I come home, but everything he does is kind. There ain't a many like him. If there was, we shouldn't want no churches. What do you want to speak to me about, Mrs. Gamp? said Mould, coming to the point. Just this, sir, Mrs. Gamp returned, with thanks to you for asking. "'There is a gent, sir, at the Bull in Holborn, as has been took ill there, and is bad a bed. They have a day nurse as was recommended from Bartholomew's, and well I knows her, Mr. Mould, his name being Mrs. Prigg, the best of creatures, but she is otherwise engaged at night, and they are in wants of night-watching, consequent she says to them, having reposed the greatest friendliness in me for twenty year, the soberest person going, and the best of blessing in a sick-room is Mrs. Gamp, send a boy to Kingsgate Street, she says, and snap her up at any price, for Mrs. Gamp is worth her weight and more in golden guineas. My landlord brings the message down to me, and says, being in a light place where you are, and this job promising so well, why not unite the two? No, sir, I says, not unbeknown to Mr. Mould, and therefore do not think it. But I will go to Mr. Mould, I says, and ask him if you like. Here she looked sideways at the undertaker, and came to a stop. Night-watching, eh? said Mould, rubbing his chin. "'From eight o'clock till eight, sir, I will not deceive you,' Mrs. Gamp rejoined. "'And then go back, eh?' said Mould. "'Quite free, then, sir, to attend to Mr. Chuffey. His ways being quiet and his hours early, he'd be abed, sir, nearly all the time. I will not deny,' said Mrs. Gamp, with meekness, "'that I am but a poor woman.' and that the money is a object, but do not let that act upon you, Mr. Bold. Rich folks may ride on camels, but it ain't so easy for em to see out of a needle's eye. That is my comfort, and I hope I knows it. "'Well, Mrs. Gamp,' observed Mould, "'I don't see any particular objection to your earning an honest penny under such circumstances. I should keep it quiet, I think, Mrs. Gamp. I wouldn't mention it to Mr. Chuzzlewit on his return, for instance, unless it were necessary, or he asked you point-blank.' "'The very words was on my lips, sir,' Mrs. Gamp rejoined. Supposing that the gent should die, I hope I might take the liberty of saying as I knowed someone in the undertaking line, and yet give no offence to you, sir. Certainly, Mrs. Gamp, said Mould, with much condescension.
you may casually remark in such a case that we do the thing pleasantly and in a great variety of styles and are generally considered to make it as agreeable as possible to the feelings of the survivors but don't obtrude it don't obtrude it easy easy my dear you may as well give mrs gamp a card or two if you please mrs gamp received them and scenting no more rum in the wind for the bottle was locked up again rose to take her departure wishing every happiness to this happy family said mrs gamp with all my heart good afternoon mrs mould if i was mister would i should be jealous of you ma'am and i'm sure if i was you i should be jealous of mr mould tut tut baba go along mrs gamp cried the delighted undertaker as to the young ladies said mrs gamp dropping a curtsey bless their sweet looks how they can ever reconcile it with their duties to be so grown up with such young parents it ain't for such as me to give a guess at nonsense nonsense be off mrs gamp said mould but in the height of his gratification he actually pinched mrs mould as he said it i'll tell you what my dear he observed when mrs gamp had at last withdrawn and shut the door that's a very shrewd woman that's a woman whose intellect is immensely superior to her station in life that's a woman who observes and reflects in an uncommon manner she's the sort of woman now said bold drawing his silk handkerchief over his head again and composing himself for a nap one would almost feel disposed to bury for nothing and do it neatly too mrs mould and her daughters fully concurred in these remarks the subject of which had by this time reached the street where she experienced so much inconvenience from the air that she was obliged to stand under an archway for a short time to recover herself even after this precaution she walked so unsteadily as to attract the compassionate regards of divers kind-hearted boys who took the liveliest interest in her disorder and in their simple language bade her be of good cheer for she was only a little screwed whatever she was or whatever name the vocabulary of medical science would have bestowed upon her malady mrs gamp was perfectly acquainted with the way home and arriving at the house of anthony chuzzlewit and son lay down to rest remaining there until seven o'clock in the evening and then persuading poor old chuffey to betake himself to bed she sallied forth upon her new engagement first she went to her private lodging in kingsgate street for a bundle of robes and wrappings comfortable in the night season and then repaired to the bull in holborn which she reached as the clocks were striking eight as she turned into the yard she stopped for the landlord landlady and head chambermaid were all on the threshold together talking earnestly with a young gentleman who seemed to have just come or just be going away the first words that struck upon mrs gamp's ear obviously bore reference to the patient and it being expedient that all good attendants should know as much as possible about the case at which their skill is brought to bear mrs gamp listened as a matter of duty no better then observed the gentleman worse said the landlord much worse added the landlady oh a deal better cried the chambermaid from the background opening her eyes very wide and shaking her head poor fellow said the gentleman i am sorry to hear it the worst of it is that i have no idea what friends or relations he has or where they live except that it certainly is not in london the landlord looked at the landlady 
The landlady looked at the landlord, and the chambermaid remarked hysterically that of all the many wag directions she has ever seen or heard of, and they wasn't few in a hotel, that was the waggest. "'The fact is, you see,' pursued the gentleman, "'as I told you yesterday when you sent to me, I really know very little about him. We were schoolfellows together, but since that time I have only met him twice. On both occasions I was in London for a boy's holiday, having come up for a week or so from Wiltshire, and lost sight of him again directly. The letter bearing my name and address which you found upon his table, and which led to you applying to me, is in answer, you will observe, to one he wrote from his house the very day he was taken ill, making an appointment with him at his own request. Here is his letter, if you wish to see it. The landlord read it. The landlady looked over him. The chambermaid in the background made out as much of it as she could, and invented the rest, believing it from that time forth as a positive piece of evidence. "'He has very little luggage, you say,' observed the gentleman, who was no other than our old friend John Westlock. "'Nothing but a portmanteau, said the landlord, and very little in it. A few pounds in his purse, though?' "'Yes, it's sealed up and in the cash-box. I made a memorandum of the amount which you're welcome to see.' "'Well,' said John, "'as the medical gentleman says the fever must take its course, and nothing can be done just now beyond giving him his drinks regularly and having him carefully attended to, nothing more can be said that I know of until he is in a condition to give us some information. Can you suggest anything else?' "'No,' replied the landlord, "'except—except—' "'Who's to pay, I suppose?' said John. "'Why?' hesitated the landlord. "'It would be as well.' "'Quite as well,' said the landlady. "'Not forgetting to remember the servants,' said the chambermaid, in a bland whisper. "'It is but reasonable, I fully admit,' said John Westlock. "'At all events you have the stock in hand to go upon for the present, and I will readily undertake to pay the doctor and the nurses.' "'Ah!' cried Mrs. Camp. "'A real gentleman!' She groaned her admiration so audibly that they all turned round. Mrs. Gamp felt the necessity of advancing, bundle in hand, and introducing herself. "'The night nurse,' she observed, "'from Kingsgate Street, well be known to Mrs. Prigg, the day nurse, and the best of creatures. How is the poor dear gentleman to-night?' "'If he ain't no better yet, still, that is what must be expected and prepared for. "'It ain't, it ain't the first time by many a score, ma'am,' dropping a curtsy to the landlady, "'that Mrs. Prigg and me has nussed together, turn and turn about, one off, one on. "'We knows each other's ways, and often gives relief when others fail. "'Our charges is but low, sir.' Mrs. Gamp addressed herself to John on this head, considering the nature of our painful duty. If they was made according to our wishes, they would be easy paid. Regarding herself as having now delivered her inauguration address, Mrs. Gamp curtsied all round, and signified her wish to be conducted to the scene of her official duties. The chambermaid led her through a variety of intricate passages to the top of the house, and pointing at length to a solitary door at the end of a gallery, informed her that yonder was the chamber where the patient lay. That done, she hurried off with all the speed she could make. Mrs. Gamp traversed the gallery in a great heat from having carried her large bundle up so many stairs, and tapped at the door which was immediately opened by Mrs. Prigg, bonneted and shawled, and all impatience to be gone. 
Mrs. Prigg was of the gamp build, but not so fat, and her voice was deeper and more like a man's. She also had a beard. "'I begin to think you'll want a coven,' Mrs. Prigg observed, in some displeasure. "'It shall be made good to-morrow night,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'Honourable. I had to go and fetch my things.' She had begun to make signs of inquiry in reference to the position of the patient and his overhearing them, for there was a screen before the door, when Mrs. Prigg settled that point easily. "'Oh,' she said aloud, "'he's quiet, but his wits are gone. It ain't no matter what you say.' "'Anything to tell afore you goes, my dear?' asked Mrs. Gamp, setting her bundle down inside the door and looking affectionately at her partner. "'The pickled salmon,' Mrs. Prigg replied, "'is quite delicious. I can particular recommend it. Don't have nothing to say to the cold meat, for it tastes of the stable. The drinks is all good.' Mrs. Gamp expressed herself much gratified. "'The physic in them things is on the drawers and mankle shelf,' said Mrs. Prigg, cursorily. "'He took his last slime-draft at seven. The easy-chair ain't soft enough. You'll want his pillar.' Mrs. Gamp thanked her for these hints, and, giving her a friendly good-night, held the door open until she had disappeared at the other end of the gallery. Having thus performed the hospitable duty of seeing her safely off, she shut it, locked it on the inside, took up her bundle, walked round the screen, and entered on her occupation of the sick-chamber. "'A little dull, but not so bad as might be,' Mrs. Gamp remarked. "'I'm glad to see a parapage in case of a fire, and lots of roofs and chimney-pots to walk upon.' It will be seen from these remarks that Mrs. Gamp was looking out of window. When she had exhausted the prospect, she tried the easy-chair, which she indignantly declared was harder than a brick-badge. Next she pursued her researches along the physic-bottles, glasses, jugs, and teacups, and when she had entirely satisfied her curiosity on all these subjects of investigation, she untied her bonnet-strings and strolled up to the bedside to look at the patient. A young man, dark and not ill-looking, with long black hair that seemed the blacker for the whiteness of the bedclothes. His eyes were partly opened, and he never ceased to roll his head from side to side upon the pillow, keeping his body almost quiet. He did not utter words, but every now and then gave vent to an expression of impatience or fatigue, sometimes of surprise, and still his restless head, oh, weary, weary hour, went to and fro without a moment's intermission. Mrs. Gamp solaced herself with a pinch of snuff, and stood looking at him with her head inclined a little sideways, as a connoisseur might gaze upon a doubtful work of art. By degrees a horrible remembrance of one branch of her calling took possession of the woman, and stooping down she pinned his wandering arms against his sides to see how he would look if laid out as a dead man. Her fingers itched to compose his limbs in that last marble attitude. "'Ah!' said Mrs. Gamp, walking away from the bed. "'He'd make a lovely corpse!' She now proceeded to unpack her bundle, lighted a candle with the aid of a firebox on the drawers, filled a small kettle as a preliminary to refreshing himself with a cup of tea in the course of the night, laid what she called a little bit of fire for the same philanthropic purpose, and also set forth a small tea-board that nothing might be wanting for her comfortable enjoyment. These preparations occupied so long 
that when they were brought to a conclusion it was high time to think about supper, so she rang the bell and ordered it. "'I think, young woman,' said Mrs. Gamp to the assistant chambermaid, in a tone expressive of weakness, "'that I could pick a little bit of pickled salmon with a nice little sprig of fennel and a sprinkling of white pepper. I take snow-bread, my dear, with just a little pat of fresh butter and a morsel of cheese. In case there should be such a thing as a cowcumber in the house, will you be so kind as bring it, for I'm rather partial to em, and they does a world of good in a sick-room. If they draws the bright and old tipper here, I take that ale at night, my love, it being considered wakeful by the doctors. And whatever you do, young woman, don't bring more than a shilling's worth of gin and warm water when I rings the bell a second time, for that is always my allowance, and I never takes a drop beyond. Having preferred these moderate requests, Mrs. Gamp observed that she would stand at the door until the order was executed, to the end that the patient might not be disturbed by her opening it a second time, and therefore she would thank the young woman to look sharp. A tray was brought with everything upon it, even to the cucumber, and Mrs. Gamp accordingly sat down to eat and drink in high good humour. The extent to which she availed herself of the vinegar, and supped up that refreshing fluid with the blade of her knife, can scarcely be expressed in narrative. "'Ah!' sighed Mrs. Gamp, as she meditated over the warm shillings worth. "'What a blessed thing it is, living in a well, to be contented! What a blessed thing it is to make sick people happy in their beds, and never mind oneself as long as one can do a service!' I don't believe a finer cowcumber was ever growed. I'm sure I've never seen one. She moralized in the same vein until her glass was empty, and then administered the patient's medicine by the simple process of clutching his windpipe to make him gasp, and immediately pouring it down his throat. I almost forgot the pillar, I declare, said Mrs. Gamp, drawing it away. There. Now he's comfortable as he can be, I'm sure. I must try to make myself as much so as I can." With this view she went about the construction of an extemporaneous bed in the easy-chair, with the addition of the next easy one for her feet. Having formed the best coach that the circumstances admitted of, she took out of her bundle a yellow nightcap, of prodigious size, in shape resembling a cabbage, which article of dress she fixed and tied on with the utmost care, previously divesting herself of a row of bald old curls that could scarcely be called false, they were so very innocent of anything approaching to deception. From the same repository she brought forth a night-jacket in which she also attired herself. Finally she produced a watchman's coat, which she tied round her neck by the sleeves, so that she became two people, and looked behind as if she were in the act of being embraced by one of the old patrol. All these arrangements made, she lighted the rushlight, coiled herself up on her couch, and went to sleep. Ghostly and dark the room became, and full of lowering shadows. The distant noises in the streets were gradually hushed. The house was quiet as a sepulchre. The dead of night was coffined in the silent city. Oh, weary, weary hour! O oh, haggard mind groping darkly through the past, incapable of detaching itself from the miserable present, 
dragging its heavy chain of care through imaginary feasts and revels and scenes of awful pomp seeking but a moment's rest among the long-forgotten haunts of childhood and the resorts of yesterday and dimly finding fear and horror everywhere oh weary weary hour what were the wanderings of cain to these still without a moment's interval the burning head tossed to and fro still from time to time fatigue impatience suffering and surprise found utterance upon that rack and plainly too though never once in words at length in the solemn hour of midnight he began to talk waiting awfully for answers sometimes as though invisible companions were about his bed and so replying to their speech and questioning again mrs gamp awoke and sat up in her bed presenting on the wall the shadow of a gigantic night constable struggling with a prisoner gamp hold your tongue she cried in sharp reproof don't make none of that noise here there was no alteration in the face or the incessant motion of the head, but he talked on wildly. "'Ah!' said Mrs. Gamp, coming out of the chair with an impatient shiver. "'I thought I was asleep and too pleasant to last. The devil's in the night, I think, it turned so chilly.' "'Don't drink so much,' cried the sick man. "'You'll ruin us all. Don't you see how the fountain sinks? Look at that mark where the sparkling water was just now.' sparkling water indeed said mrs gamp i'll have a sparkling cup of tea i think i wish you'd hold your noise he burst into a laugh which being prolonged fell off into a dismal wail checking himself with fierce inconstancy he began to count fast one two three four five six one two buckle my shoe said mrs gamp who was now on her knees lighting the fire Three, four, shut the door. I wish you'd shut your mouth, young man. Five, six, picking up sticks. If I'd got a few handy, I should have the kettle boiling all the sooner. Awaiting this desirable consummation, she sat down so close to the fender, which was a high one, that her nose rested upon it, and for some time she drowsily amused herself by sliding that feature backwards and forwards along the brass top, as far as she could, without changing her position to do it. She maintained all the while a running commentary upon the wanderings of the man in bed. "'That makes five hundred and twenty-one men, all dressed alike, and with the same distortion on their faces that have passed in at the window and out at the door,' he cried anxiously. "'Look there! Five hundred and twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four. Do you see them?' "'Ah, I see em, said Mrs. Gamp. "'All the whole kit of em numbered like hackney-coaches, ain't they? Touch me!' let me be sure of this touch me you'll take your next draught when i've made the kettle mile retorted mrs gamp composedly and you'll be touched then you'll be touched up too if you don't take it quiet five hundred and twenty-eight five hundred and twenty-nine five hundred and thirty look here what's the matter now said mrs gamp they're coming four abreast each man with his arm entwined to the next man's, and his hand upon his shoulder. What's that? Well, the arm of every man, and on the flag. Spiders, perhaps, said Mrs. Gamp. Crape, black crape, good God, why do they wear it outside? Would you have them carry black crape on their insides? Mrs. Gamp retorted. Hold your noise, hold your noise. 
The fire beginning by this time to impart a grateful warmth, Mrs. Gamp became silent, gradually rubbing her nose more and more slowly along the top of the fender, and fell into a heavy doze. She was awakened by the room ringing, as she fancied, with a name she knew, Chuzzlewit. The sound was so distinct and real and full of agonized entreaty that Mrs. Gamp jumped up in terror and ran to the door. She expected to find the passage filled with people come to tell her that the house in the city had taken fire, but the place was empty, not a soul was there. She opened the window and looked out. Dark, dull, dingy, and desolate housetops. As she passed to her seat again, she glanced at the patient. Just the same, but silent. Mrs. Gap was so warm now that she threw off the watchman's coat and fanned herself. "'It seemed to make the very bottles ring,' she said. "'What could I have been dreaming of? That dratted chuffy, I'd be bound.' The supposition was probable enough. At any rate, a pinch of snuff, and the song of the steaming kettle quite restored the tone of Mrs. Gamp's nerves, which were none of the weakest. She brewed her tea, made some buttered toast, and sat down at the tea-board with her face to the fire. Would once again, in a tone more terrible than that which had vibrated in her slumbering ear, these words were streaked out. "'Chuzzlewit! Jonas! No!' Mrs. Gamp dropped the cup she was in the act of raising to her lips, and turned round with a start that made the little tea-board leap. The cry had come from the bed. It was a bright morning the next time Mrs. Gamp looked out of the window, and the sun was rising cheerfully. Lighter and lighter grew the sky and noisier the streets, and high into the summer air uprose the smoke of newly kindled fires until the busy day was broad awake. Mrs. Prigg relieved punctually, having passed a good night at her other patients. Mr. Westlock came at the same time, but was not admitted, the disorder being infectious. The doctor came, too. The doctor shook his head. It was all that he could do under the circumstances, and he did it well. "'What sort of night, nurse?' "'Restless, sir,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'Talk much?' "'Middling, sir,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'Nothing to the purpose, I suppose.' "'Oh, bless you, no, sir. Only jargon.' "'Well,' said the doctor, "'we must keep him quiet, keep the room cool, give him his draughts regularly, and see that he's carefully looked to. That's all.' "'As long as Mrs. Prigg and me waits upon him, sir, no fear of that,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'I suppose,' observed Mrs. Prigg, when they had curtsied the doctor out, "'there's nothing new.' "'Nothing at all, my dear,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'He is rather wearied in his talk from making up a lot of names. Elseways you needn't mind him.' "'Oh, I shan't mind him,' Mrs. Prigg returned. "'I have something else to think of.' "'I pay my debts to-night, you know, my dear, and comes afore my time,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'But Betsy Prigg, speaking with great feeling, and laying her hand upon her arm, Try the cucumbers. God bless you. End of chapter twenty five.